A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this special Tisha B'Av episode in our ongoing series of Jewish Saviors of the Holocaust has been generously sponsored by Aleph Betta. And with Tisha B'Av approaching, I want to encourage all the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites to check out Aleph Betta's collection of Tisha B'Av videos. Rabbi David Foreman, the founder of Aleph Betta, explores some of the most well-known Tisha B'Av texts to discover the deeper meaning and relevance of the day. And there's some great news for Jewish History Soundbites listeners. For a limited time only, all listeners of Jewish History Soundbites will get an $18 discount off of the annual Aleph Beta membership, which gives you access to all the Tisha B'Av videos and plus hundreds more throughout the year on the Parsha, on Yom Tovim, on all the holidays. All you need to do is go to alephbeta.org. That's A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A dot org. A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A dot org. And you go into the coupon code SOUNDBITES22. When you check out, so the coupon code is SoundBites22 for the $18 discount on the annual premium membership for all Aleph Beta content. I happen to love their content and uh, use it all the time. They have great stuff, and I really think that listeners of Jewish History Soundbites will enjoy it as well. It's one of those uh, websites that are producing very, very good stuff. Um, in-depth, really, really from a whole variety there, and I really think you'll enjoy it. So I highly recommend that you check out Aleph Beta, and uh, you won't regret it. So we're here ready for Tisha B'Av. Just came back off of a great trip to the United States. Um, met many, many listeners of Jewish History Samais. That was very exciting. It's, you know, it's always fun to spice up the nine days with exciting uh uh, uh, you know, reunions with uh, um, Jewish History Soundbites listeners. I had a great tour in Mount Judah Cemetery last Friday where I met up with some listeners and lectures and shuls and bungalow colonies and all over. A really, really great time. Nice, great topics for all the uh, nine days lectures that I had. And it was great to meet you all. Hopefully we'll have an opportunity to meet again and uh, and meet those who tried to to be in touch and unfortunately didn't work out because the trip was so quick. Um, also, I'd recommend you check out the latest uh, Headlines podcast of Reb David Lichtenstein, where he discusses the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, where I was interviewed um, about the Warsaw Ghetto and the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. I think that it would be an enjoyable topic and also apropos for the days that we are in. Um, also, of course, the death of Vin Scully, the legendary um, sports broadcaster for the Brooklyn Dodgers and later the L.A. Dodgers for, I don't know, 60, 70 years? How long was he in, in it for? Um, so he's he, it's almost Jewish history, a guy like Vin Scully die. So I guess it's worth a mention. Um, either way, let's get to our topic of today. Um, the topic of today is the working group of Slovakia. Uh, of of the m- several members, all of whom were heroes, Reb Michal Ber Weissmandel is most well known 
in the religious community. So people consider it a famous uh, story, yet the details are not so well known. In fact, uh, they're very not well known. They're not only not well known, they're, they're, there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of mistakes. And it's unfortunate because it's such a good story and it's really a pity to have the whole story wrong because it's probably the most prominent and most important story of Jews saving Jews while under Nazi occupation of the entire Holocaust. I can think of no parallel where anything comes close to the activities and scope of the activities of the working group in Slovakia, in Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, used to be called Preshburg, when Slovakia became an independent country, so Bratislava was the name, and that is the name until today. That's where the working group was based out of. Um, and it's also a long story, and it's kind of a disservice to try to attempt to get the whole story into one episode. Um, but we'll try anyway. Also, the story of the working group and Rebbe Cholber Weissmandel um, <clears throat> will probably anger all the right people, because everyone has their preconceived notion about what the story really was, and I'm going to try to stick to the truth. Um, so if it angers the right people, that's excellent because it's a Tisha B'Av uh, episode and you're not supposed to be happy on Tisha B'Av. So if it would be an episode that would make you happy, then that would be counterproductive. So it's better to be angry than to be happy. Um, and there's a lot of, like I said, there's some misconceptions, there's truth. It's a story that's been politicized with various people who had different agendas throughout the last 75 years or so even by some of the participants themselves, which is really interesting, and we're going to have to really sift through it to get to the real uh, story. Um, his story, and really it's the working group story, has been hijacked uh, over the years by all sorts of involved parties to serve their respective agendas. And, um, and, and I think that the story is fascinating and heroic enough on its own merits without any of the additions and censorship. Now, there's a lot of scholarship devoted to it. Quite a few members of the working group survived and wrote their memoirs, um, including Rebbe Weissmandel, Dr. Oscar Newman, um, Andre Steiner, um, a couple of others. And there's also a lot of scholarship devoted to it. Um, there's books written about Abraham Fuchs, wrote it from Rebbe Weissmandel's angle. Others have written about Gysi Fleischmann, who was killed in Auschwitz. Others have written about the story in general. Um, and especially, let's take, for example, the greatest uh, uh, Holocaust historian in the entire world, uh, you, Professor Yehuda Bauer, who's in his 90s and still producing new scholarship. So he's written about this. And in general, he's become a great uh, shaper of Holocaust historiography. He's an incredible researcher. I've been privileged to hear him lecture uh, several times live, and I've read his books, and um, he he he's he's very very good at in cutting down to the core of 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 what we're able to see in retrospect, of what we're able to see when we sift through the archives and look at the larger picture, which very often is even greater than what the participants themselves were able to see at the time. And I'm prefacing with this point. Because sometimes we're able to understand more than what members of the working group, including Rebbechar Bavarisman himself, understood at the time because we, we have access to better sources, we're able to see the bigger picture, we, we can you know, read, read it and, and research it more calmly um, and from a certain distance um, than, than when the horror was happening itself. Um, so... Slovakia was a very unique situation. The reason the working group was able to do what they did was because of Slovakia's unique situation. They were literally the only country that had this situation. In, in, in Nazi Europe during World War II, you're usually one of three, you're one of, in one of three areas. Either you're in an allied country, such as England, or the area of the Soviet Union that was never occupied, by the Nazis, or neutral countries like Switzerland or Sweden, which were not occupied by the Nazis. That's one area to be in. That's a relatively safe area. Um, the second place to be in is under direct Nazi occupation, anywhere where the German armies occupied in the course of their war, World War II. 
The third place to be in is in a Nazi allied country, a Nazi uh, allied country such as Italy, Bulgaria, Romania for most of the war, Hungary for most of the war. Um, uh, I'm forgetting a few, but there's several more. So Slovakia is literally in its own category. It is a puppet state of the Nazis, um, taken after the Munich Agreement, um, the, the, when, when Hitler takes over the Czech lands, Bohemia and Moravia. So Slovakia becomes a puppet state, pro-Nazi, the Halinka Guard, Josef Tiso, a, a, a Catholic priest, becomes the dictator of Slovakia, and they're very anti-Semitic. And, and so they're a puppet state, Nazi collaborators, but not really under direct Nazi occupation. There are SS in the country. There is very close cooperation, and they're total collaborators, possibly even the worst collaborators. Maybe Croatia might be worse. People always ask me on trips, who are the worst collaborators? Was it Ukrainians? Was it Lithuanians? Was it this? Was it that? I think it, it would be more accurate to say Slovakians or Croatians. They were the only countries that voluntarily killed their own Jews without Nazi uh, help and voluntarily handed over their own Jews. In fact, Slovakia took it a step further. They paid the Nazis to take away their Jews, 500 marks per Jew that the Nazis deported. Uh, Croatia also paid to take away their Jews, but they paid less. They were cheaper. Either way, so... The, the, the situation of Slovakia is very unique because on one hand, it's not direct Nazi occupation and that allows for some leniencies, meaning there is some Jewish autonomy, there is some you know, movement and Jewish leadership, which we'll see, how, that's how the group, working group was able to operate, they are able to travel a little more, it was a, a little bit different than under direct Nazi occupation. On the other hand, the... the um, they are with a bunch of collaborators, so they have to bribe Slovakians not to kill them, just like they have to bribe uh, um, the Nazis themselves. So there's really two parties involved here. And it's a very, very interesting situation, and that's what allowed the space for a unique group like the working group to emerge and attempt in incredibly daring attempts and courageous attempts, uh, heroic attempts to save Jewish lives, first in Slovakia itself, and then refugees from Poland, and then later they attempted even to save Jews across Europe and Hungarian Jewry at the end of the war. They, they never stopped. Their whole goal was to save Jewish lives, and very, very little success. But uh, like I said at the beginning of this series, I don't think the barometer of success in Nazi Germany was how many lives you saved, because the Nazis, at the end of the day, called these shots, and, and they decided when they're implementing the final solution... But uh, and, and therefore, most Jews were killed. But I think that the fact that they did so much and tried so hard is the story. That's the heroics, not, not in the numbers of how many they saved, which there were significant numbers that they actually saved. But, but uh, you know, the, the attempts are, are, I think, even more important, the, the story. Um, so that's, that's the background of Slovakia. Josef Tiso, like I mentioned, is the dictator. There's a guy, Anton Vasek, who plays a major role in the collaboration with the Nazis to deport. He's a, a, a uh, Slovakian uh, uh, government official, one of the top people in the government. I forget his exact title. Um, and uh, he becomes the main recipient of bribes from the working group. Um, and there's other Slovakian collaborators and bribe takers. Um, the Slovak Jewish community is organized by the Slovak government, um, and, and their Judenrat is appointed, a Jewish administrative council. They're called the Jewish Center, and there's some impossible to pronounce Slovakian name for it, Yuzhra, something like that. Um, UZ is the uh, uh, initials. So, but in English, it's, it translates it to, into the Jewish Center, and the Jewish Center at its head. Um, first is an Orthodox Jew who refuses to collaborate with the Nazis and produce lists. Later on, he's, he's uh, disposed of, and the Nazis find someone who's more willingly collaborating. They had guy Sebastian, and then they had a guy, Karl Hochberg. He was an outright collaborator, and he was hated by the Slovakian Jewish community for his willingness to go along with the Nazis. Um, so that is the Judenrat, and they're the ones who run the Jewish community. What the working group emerges 
is this shadowy um, um, counter leadership within the Judenrat. Almost all of the original members of the working group, they call themselves the Arbitz group, uh, the working group, they, they worked, they were employees of the Judenrat in various different positions. Gisi Fleischmann, Oscar Newman, Tibor Kovacs, um, uh, uh, Andre Steiner, and several others, William First, they, were, they founded the working group within the Judenrat. So you have a very, very unique situation where the Judenrat itself has this rebellious faction working under the shadows, working um, to save Jews, and essentially against the Judenrat and the Nazis. That's, that's, that's how the working group emerges. And, and um, another thing to keep in mind is the Slovakian people and partisans, they, there's partisans who are against the Nazi occupation and against the Nazi collaborators, Slovak citizens, non-Jews. There were Jews who fought in the partisans as well, of course. And towards the end of the war, in September 1944, there's, at the end of August, really, there's the Slovak National Uprising. And the partisans of Slovakia, they rise up against the Nazis and the Halinka Guard and the collaborators. Excuse me. So, that if you're in the area where the partisans controlled, you were lucky, because they controlled that till the end of the war, which was a few months later, and you were saved. If you're in the area that the partisans did not control... So the Nazis, the Germans, invade Slovakia because of this Slovak national uprising. So in September 1944, a bulk of the country, including, crucially, Bratislava, the capital, where most of the remaining Jews were, comes under direct Nazi occupation. And therefore, the, the story changes for the Jews, in the remaining Jews in Slovakia at the time, because they come under direct Nazi occupation. So the Slovak National Uprising, which essentially is supposed to do, bode well for the Jews, it has a counter-effect for the areas that come under direct Nazi occupation. That's another thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in the background, which I think is almost always overlooked, is the Nazi perspective of the final solution from, from their point of view. From their point of view, and the people involved, is of course Adolf Eichmann, um, who's in charge of transports and implementing the final solution in many countries. And one of his deputies is based in Slovakia for a good chunk of the war, and he becomes the major key player in the whole story of the working group, and his name is Dieter Wislitzeni. And he is uh, you know, uh, caught after the war, he testifies for the prosecution at Nuremberg, his testimony proves crucial for the prosecution of Adolf Eichmann, uh, 15 years later in Israel. In 1948, he is tried, he's extradited and tried in Czechoslovakia and uh, hung or, or killed for his crimes. Crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes. He was a, you know, a terrible SS, uh, evil, wicked human being. Besides for that, he also um, was the one, the main negotiator with the working group in all their in all their negotiations, in all their bribery, he was the point man, uh, Eichmann's de deputy, and he happened to have a personal connection with Heinrich Himmler, the chief of the SS himself, and one or two times he bypassed Eichmann and went directly to Himmler. So from from Wislitzeni and Eichmann and Himmler's point of view, and Alice Brunner, uh, Brunner and, and any other SS officers who were in Slovakia, their, their goal is to implement the final solution at, at once, once the final solution becomes decided upon to be implemented. And that is their only goal, both ideologically and by the fact that they're an SS officer, they're supposed to carry it out. So that has to be kept in mind because, and, you know, according to some incorrect uh, versions of the story, it... it, it it seems like, you know, Vislitseni was basically this great guy who loved negotiating with the working group and basically was all aboard saving Jews. And, uh, and, uh, and it was all these other rotten people out there, mostly Jews, who sabotaged these things. And, uh, and, and you know, and Vislitseni comes out looking good. Um, that's obviously not the case. And Vislitseni was not a good guy. And as he's negotiating with with the working group in Revaismandel, he's also deporting Jews of Slovakia, he's deporting Jews of Greece, he's deporting Jews of Hungary. Um, he, he, he was a, one of the 
main people who carried out the final solution in those three countries. And he's a deputy of Adolf Eichmann. Um, and of course, Eichmann himself is involved and other officers as well. Um, we Now, there's also, it's important as we go through the story of the of the working group is that is that the um, the timeline you have to understand how the war progresses the timeline of their activities they form at the end of 1941 when they give up hope on the Judenrat ever really accomplishing anything they see them as a bunch of collaborators so these workers in the Judenrat form their own group Remachober Weismandl who did not work in the Judenrat joins the working group at a later stage. He joins it in the spring of 1942, about a half a year after it's formed. Uh, Gisi Fleischmann was the one who organized the working group, and she was the head of the working group, and she's the one who kept it, um, it, it, she one who kept it together. It was her leadership and her drive and her charisma that kept it together. She grew up in a religious home um, and uh, left a religious observant life, she was a Zionist leader in Slovakia, um, one of the heads of the Zionists in Slovakia. She was also the joint representative in Slovakia for the Joint Distribution Committee, uh, the philanthropic organization of the United States. So she's a major Jewish leader in Slovakia. She's also a cousin of Rabbi Shmuel David Ungar of Nitra, who's, of course, the father-in-law of Rabbi Weissmann. So it's his kind of his cousin, and that's another connection that's made there. Um, so, so he joins and he becomes the driving force behind it, um, uh, together with Gisi Fleischmann, and they work well together. And it's an incredibly diverse group, which I'll get to in a second, which is probably the main point I want to make about this whole uh, story of the working group, is how diverse they were and how they were the only rescue group, to the best of my knowledge, of Jews working under Nazi occupation that represented the entire gamut of Jewish political, ideological, and religious life in Europe. They really brought the entire Jewish community together. The working group included members across the spectrum, and I'll get to that in a second. But I want to talk about their timeline a little bit and whatever some of the things they tried to do so that we can delve into it more uh, as we go along. They, it's important to know um, what, was their, what was the timeline of their activities based on what they knew and when. In other words, in... 1941, when they form, it's uh, when they the formation of the working group. They are dealing with um, Jews being sent to labor camps in Slovakia, like Sered and a couple other ones, and 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 the conditions that they have there, and um, and and getting Jews working papers. In the beginning of 1942, the Nazis start to deport Slovakian Jews. In fact, Slovakian Jews are the first Jews to arrive in Auschwitz in March 1942. A transport of close to a thousand Jewish Slovakian women arrive in Auschwitz. That is the first Jews to arrive in Auschwitz for the first two years of Auschwitz. Auschwitz is founded as a is established as a concentration camp by the Nazis in June 1940, and it is Poles who are sent there for the first two years, almost two years, from June 1940 till March 1942. The first Jews arrive from Slovakia in in uh, Auschwitz in March 1942. So it's non-Jewish Poles and, and Soviet prisoners of war who are there until that point. In any event, with the beginning of the deportations, so the uh, working group attempts to stop the deportation of Slovakian Jews. Now they don't know where they're being deported to, but they got reports from cour- couriers and, and contacts in Poland that anyone who's deported to Poland uh, the Nazis lie, the families aren't together, and there's starvation, and they're put into terrible conditions. They did not know about the extermination. They were just told that it's bad conditions there, and therefore they wanted to attempt to stop the, to stop the deportation of Slovakian Jews to Poland because they heard it was bad conditions. Um, at the same time, there are Polish Jewish refugees escaping into Slovakia, and they assist them. The working group tries to assist them. They try to smuggle Jews from Slovakia and from Poland into Hungary. They find out about the final solution in November, December 1942, which is just about when the rest of the world finds out about it because the Polish government in exile uh, held a BBC press conference in December 1942 um, with the information they received from the Polish resistance who received their information from the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto, from the Bund, from the Ringelblum Archive, 
Um, so the Polish uh, uh, government exile holds a press conference in December 1942. At around that same time, uh, Remachover Weissmandel finds out from his own contacts about the final solution, and he himself and the working group did not know about it until November or December 1942. And the working group is shocked, and they decide to disseminate the news of the final solution to their contacts, primarily in Switzerland and Hungary. That's where their contacts were. And from there, it goes beyond. It goes to the rest of the world. Later on, when they, when they, um, when they, they also have a plan to save the remaining Jews of Europe in late 1943, what Rebbe Chobar Weissman conceived of as the Europa plan to save the remaining Jews of Europe. About a million Jews were still alive in Europe at that point, according to their calculation, and they were going to enter negotiations with Vislitsani to save the last Jews of Europe um, under Nazi occupation and uh, for bribery. And, um, and that was quite an unrealistic plan, but, um, but we'll get into it and we'll see what the working group thought, what were their goals with the Europa plan, and why ultimately it didn't work, because that's a matter of controversy until this very day. Later on in the war, when the Europa Plan fell through, but the Nazis invaded Hungary in March 1944, so there's attempts to save Hungarian Jewry. The working group was nominally involved with that, mainly by by spreading the news to Hungarian Jewry, um, but it was mainly Hungarian rescue groups within Hungary that were involved in that. Mechobar um, Weissmandl and the working group also formulated the idea of the Allies bombing Auschwitz, which didn't happen, which is also a big story and a controversy till today. Was it realistic at all, or was it the Allies who were just anti-Semitic, or was it that they put military goals first, or was it simply a technical issue that there was no such thing as target bombing in World War II, and and the bombs would have simply uh, either missed, missed the camp or killed all the Jews in the camp, because... There's almost no way to pinpoint and bomb a crematorium or a railroad track leading to camp. But that's I'm not going to really get into that story because it's so controversial and anyone who speaks about it gets so emotional about it. And you would need a lot of time to really explain the story of the idea to bomb Auschwitz that I don't know if we'll have time to get into it uh, this time. But it, it, the idea, the point I'm trying to make is that the idea it comes from the working group and therefore, that's to their credit as well, because again, they're trying everything. They're seeing any possible way to save Jewish lives, and the fact that it, it that it might be unrealistic is is not to, is not to be looked down upon, because they're looking at a very desperate situation, and it's from their limited perspective at that time, and to their understanding, this is a possibility to save Jewish lives. Then let's pursue that possibility, and therefore. No one else was pursuing these possibilities, and they were. And I think that that's what's important here. Uh, and then in September 1944, following the Slovakian national uprising and the Nazi occupation of most of Slovakia, so then they renew the deportations of the last Slovakian Jews, which had stopped for nearly two years. And, and, uh, and there's the attempts of the working group to save the last Slovakian Jews uh, during this last few months of the war, following the Slovak national uprising. So who's in the working group? So there's Gysi Fleischmann, like I said. Um, she is a prominent Zionist leader, used to be religious, not, not anymore at this point. She's a representative of the Joint. She's represented the Jewish agency. She is the leader of the working group, the fa- founder, and the one who keeps it all together. She's killed in Auschwitz. Um, in the last transport that left Slovakia at the end of October 1944. Um, there's Rebbe Weiss Mandel, who joined the working group in mid in the spring of 1942, and he becomes the driving force, the energy, the charisma. He's, he, he has a tremendous impact on the activities on the working group. He's probably the most active member, getting everyone to get, get moving and to take even the most reali- unrealistic uh, rescue schemes and pursue them. Um, he has a big impact on other members of the group. He um, um, lost his family uh, in, in Auschwitz. He escaped from the train. They were unable to escape, and he suffered some sort of breakdown after the war, and it was very unfortunate and uh, really suffered terribly um, in, his, uh, in the years after the war. He never really was able to recuperate, um, and that affected 
everything about his life, um, and he passed away young in 1957. Another uh, member of the working group was Avraham Armin Frieder, who was a neologue rabbi. A neologue was like, you know, conservative Judaism or reform Judaism in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, that area of the world. Um, so he was like a progressive rabbi, not 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 orthodox, kind of like traditional, somewhere in between, hard to describe. And he was a Zionist as well, which was rather uncommon for neologue rabbis because neologue believed in integrating into Hungary or Slovakia, wherever you lived. And here he was also a Zionist leader. And he survived the war, but passed away at the young age of 35, uh, 1946, a year after the war. Oscar Newman was a secular Zionist uh, leader in Slovakia. He was a prominent member of the Judenrat, Dr. Oscar Newman, actually. He survived the war. He passed away in Israel in 1981. Andre Steiner is probably the most important member as far as our story is concerned because he was non-ideological. He was an assimilated Jew, no, no connection to Jewish religion whatsoever, but he was non-ideological. He didn't align himself with any political uh, political or religious uh, part of the Jewish community at the time. He he was there just to rescue Jews. He started off as a professional. He was an architect, and he um, and he uh, brought, was brought in as a worker in the Judenrat as an architect because of the labor camps and so on. And he and he stayed there and joins the working group and becomes one of the most prominent members and key point men in negotiating with the SS officer Dieter Wislitzeni. And what's even more important about Andre Steiner is that unlike most of these others who were either killed or died shortly after the war, um, Andre Steiner lives to the ripe old age of 100, almost 101. He died in 2009, just a few years ago. So he lived long enough to really write his memoirs, to really be interviewed by Claude Landsman um, and, and others. Uh, when sat for several interviews, the Claude Landsman interview, which is available in Washington Holocaust uh, Museum's website is fantastic. You know, whatever you want to say about Claude Lensman, and he's not a great interviewer, but Steiner is fantastic. And if you want to really enjoy it, I watched the whole thing from beginning to end. Um, Andre Steiner's interview is really passionate. The way he talks about Umchober Weissmandel and Gissi Fleischmann and the working group, it's really, really insightful. Um, so I recommend it. So he gives a real full picture from his perspective of the activities of the working group. Another member was Dr. Tibor Kovacs. Uh, he was an assimilationist Jew. Uh, he had a close relationship with Anton Vasek. He was in his class. He was a classmate of his growing up. So he was the one who bribed this Slovakian leader to stop the deportations of the Jews from Slovakia. Um, he died in 1952 by suicide, actually. Uh, there was another uh, um, early member of the... Uh, of the working group, I wasn't it wasn't clear if it's Shlomo Gross or Shalom Gross, who was the Orthodox member before Mechober Weismandel came into the picture. It seems that he was killed. I wasn't able to get a clear picture on on what happened to him. What was his fate? So those are the members. Now, why is it so important that those are the members? Because very often the narrative about the working group is very often the other members of the working group are completely ignored. It's Mechober Weismandel operating alone, and he's the one who did it. And somehow, very often, the narrative goes something like this. Religious Jews, like Rebuchobar Weissmandel, were keen on rescue. And he met with the apathy of secular Jews on the outside world, outside Nazi occupation. And because they were secular, they, 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 or they were Zionists, which is kind of like even worse than secular, they did not want to rescue Jews. And it's this clash between religious and secular. It's this clash between Zionists and non-Zionists with Rabbi Weissmandel being the hero and the secular Jews being the villain. Right? And somehow the Nazis are on Rabbi Weissmandel's side all the time in this story. So, so the reality is, is that Rabbi Weissmandel may have been the driving force and the most energetic and charismatic and the one who came up with a lot of these incredible ideas of rescue, but at the end of the day, it was the working group all together, and it was this team, and only as a team were they able to do what they did and accomplish what they did, and all of them had the same drive of rescue, and Gisi Fleischmann was at the head, and Remachalber Weissmandel worked with all these secular Jews, with Gisi Fleischmann, the Zionist and representative of the joint, the two big enemies, right? 
she's she's that. And Dr. Oscar Newman, the Zionist, and Armin Frieder, the the uh, the Neolog and Zionist, and and Kovacs and and Steiner, who are the assimilationist uh, Jews. They're all working together, religious and secular, Zionist and non-Zionist, because they only have one thing in mind, and that's the rescue of the Jewish people, no matter who they are and what they are. And they meet with apathy on the outside, and here's another secret. They met with apathy on the outside from everyone, both the religious organizations and the secular organizations. The main ones were the secular ones because they had all the money. The joint had the money. And it's Gysi Fleischmann, as a representative of the joint, who's primarily in touch with Sally Mayer, the representative of the joint in Switzerland, and she gets frustrated at how can you not trust me? We were both working for the joint, and I'm a leader, I'm, I'm, I'm a well-known person. How could you not trust me that I'm actually going into negotiations with Vislutseni, and he's willing to accept bribes, and this can rescue people? How can you not believe it? How can you be talking about formalities and bureaucracy and currency exchange when, 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 when you know who I am? And it's the and it's the so so it really has nothing to do with secular and religious and Zionist and non-Zionist. It has to do with a team who are both religious and secular, both Zionist and non-Zionist, working together to rescue Jews. And they're under Nazi occupation. They see it with their own eyes. They're the ones negotiating with Vislaseni. They're the ones witnessing the deportations. And they're meeting with apathy on the outside from both religious and secular, from both Zionist and non-Zionist because they're living outside Nazi occupation, and it's hard to believe, and they don't understand the situation, and they don't understand, that they don't accept the situation, and it's hard for them to believe the situation. That's the reality. That's the real picture, and that's the real story of the working group, which Reb Mechober Weissmandel is a part of, and works together with. Andre Steiner says in his interview, that Reb Mechober Weissmandel once said to him, the only problem with you is that you're not Orthodox. Everything else, you're great. You have the same drive to rescue other Jews, the same love for other Jews, the same energy, the same motivation. The only issue is you don't keep Shabbos. That's, that's my only issue with you. That's, that's what Rebbe Cholav Eisman said to Steiner. Um, so, the, uh, um, the, the, uh, in fact, um, Steiner says that Rebbe Cholav had a magical influence on him, and he said he told him how to speak to people in power when he goes to bribe them. Um, he, the first person he had a bribe was Dr. Kasso, who was in charge of Seret and the concentration camps in Slovakia. And Rehobar Weissmann, in the early stage, before they knew about the final solution, is trying to establish kosher kitchens in these camps, believe it or not, to, to try to get kosher kitchens in a concentration camp. So he said, so, he, so Steiner said to Rehobar Weissmann, how can I go speak to him, to Dr. Kasso, the Slovakian politician, I'm scared. I'm intimidated. I'm, just, you know, I'm a Jew. I'm like the way they treat us. So he said he's a human being just like you. When you walk in, imagine that him. I'm just repeating what Andre Steiner said that Ermachober Weissmandel said to him. Imagine him going to the bathroom. Imagine him that he 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 has to do bodily functions just like anyone else. And then all of a sudden, you'll see that this whole like awe and fear that you have of him, you'll see he's just another human being. He, he goes to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom. So you won't be scared of him anymore. And he said that actually worked, that calmed him down. He went into the office, he imagined that, and he was able to speak to Dr. Casso. And then later on, Steiner did the same thing when he went to speak to Vislitseni, which is already an SS officer. And Mechober Weissmandel inspired him to do that. So what happens is, is that there's these bribery ideas to bribe the Slovaks and the Germans, and it came from Weissmandel. He's the one who who originates with these ideas. After the first deportations commence in March 1942, um, and he said he and and first they start bribing Vislitseni through Karl Hochberg, this Jewish collaborator on the Judenrat, until he was arrested uh, for 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 whatever crimes he was doing, and they bribed him forty thousand dollars. And then Steiner is, takes over after Hochberg is arrested. In other words, a member of the working group themselves. And, um, and, uh, and, and Weissmann tells Steiner to tell Vislitseni. He said to him, you, you should say to Vislitseni, to this SS officer in charge of the deportations of Slovakian Jewry, he, he should say to him, you think you're going to win, but we, the Jews, think that you'll lose. 
and we're giving you an alibi. You'll make some money, and uh, and 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 we're giving you an alibi. So you you should negotiate with us. Which is it's unbelievable that they were able to pull that off. And he said, Vice Mandel, you know, came to Steiner like a prophet. He said. He said, he said, Hashem will be with you. God will be with you and you'll be okay. You'll be able to speak to the SS officer. So he goes into Vizlitzani and he speaks to him. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and he was able to start negotiations. Gisi Fleischmann told Steiner to tell Vizlitzani that it's not Slovakian Jewry who's behind this proposal. It's world Jewry, which was a very important um, piece of information. Why? I'm going to elaborate here. Because the Nazis believe their own propaganda. Their propaganda was that world Jewry controls the world of finance, controls Wall Street, controls the banks. It's an international conspiracy, and they have all the money in the world. And Vislitseni and other SS officers actually believed that propaganda. And therefore, if world Jewry is behind this proposal, then there's millions of dollars available. The whole world is theirs. What was tragic about the working group and, and, and the cause of their the lack of their disappointment with the world was that it seems that they also believed it. That the working group themselves believed the Nazi propaganda too. They believed that world Jewry controlled the banks and controlled the finance and had millions of dollars at its disposal, that they were able to transfer in dollars at a good currency rate instantly during wartime um, into into uncharted territory through underground means, not through official banks. And since they believed that, um, they got very, very frustrated when, when the world jury did not provide that money instantly and didn't believe them and, 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 and couldn't get them the money. Um, so so that, that seems to be a bit of a tragedy of the working group is that they didn't realize this and they didn't understand the realities of wartime and the realities of world jury and that Nazi propaganda isn't always reflective of the reality of the world jury controlling finance. By the way, I'm sure World Jury would love to control finance, but I don't know if they do. Until today, I'm not sure if they do. Um, so with Gysi Fleischmann's advice and with Weissmandl's advice, the Steiner, Steiner goes in to meet Vislitzeni, and they, they, uh, they are able, and Vislitzeni is open to it. And this, there was a wealthy Slovakian Jew named Shlomo Stern, Orthodox Jew, who provided the initial funding. He had cash reserves, and he was this philanthropist, he, he, uh, he's a, you know, a great hero, unknown, people don't know this name, Shloyme Shner, who provided the initial bribes for Vislitzeni. Um, also another hero of Jewish history who most people don't know about. Cash, directly to Vislitzeni. He took the, mo- the money happily, uh, more so he, he took the alibi. Um, the purpose of the bribes was to stop the deportations of Slovakian Jews, even though the working group did not yet know about the extermination or final solution. This is the summer of 1942. They only knew about it at the end of the year, around December. But why do they want to stop the deportations? Because they want to prevent deportation to a bad situation in Poland, or bad situation in whatever camps they're being sent to. So Dr. Kovacs is, is working on the Slovak end, Steiner's working on the German end, uh, through bribery. Uh, a subsequent meeting with Ms. Lutzeni said he got permission from Eichmann, and he sent the money to Berlin, and Vyslitseni emphasized that he sent the money to Berlin um, because he is, 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 is a good Nazi. He's not keeping it for himself. He's sending it through official SS channels back to Berlin. Um, so in the meantime, the working group is getting more organized. They become completely devoted to saving Jewish lives. Uh, Dr. Frieder, uh, Dr. Kovacs, and Reb Weissmann continue working with the Slovaks. Um, Steiner and Weissmandel thought that bribery worked to stop the deportations. Why do they think that? Because in August, the deportations stopped. Um, And until today, there's a debate um, why they stopped. Did they stop because all non-able-bodied Jews, two-thirds of Slovakian Jewry was already deported to Auschwitz, almost all of them were killed. There were 25,000 Jews remaining in Slovakia at this time, so simply they stopped because they, they finished the first round of Jews. Was it really because of this bribery? Or was it because of other reasons? Because, the, 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 um, because they started getting busy with, with exterminating Polish Jewry, because of uh, 
the protests of the Catholic Church, which may have also been because of the working group, because the the um, Revice Mandel and Gisi Fleischmann and other members solicited the help of the Catholic Church in Slovakia, and they protested. Was it because of all kinds of other factors? There may have been internal factors within the Nazi hierarchy and SS hierarchy, why it stopped at that time. One clue is the fact that the deportations stopped on August 1st, and Vislitseni received his first bribe on August 17th, which would indicate that it was not because of the bribe. But either way, September, October, even after the bribes, there were another couple of transports, and then they stopped again for two years. So why were there more transports in September, October, if they had accepted the bribes by then? So it's possible that it had nothing to do with the bribes. It was the fact that the SS thought they finished the job, but there was another few things to clean up. So they sent two or three more transports in September, October, and then they stopped for a period of two years until they did the final liquidation of Slovakian Jewry when they occupied Slovakia after the Slovak National Uprising in September 1944. So it's a big debate today if it was actually the bribery of the working group that caused the deportations of Slovakian Jews to stop in the fall of 1944, or were there other reasons involved? In any event, it's irrelevant because the working group believed that it was their bribes, and that's what led them to the next stage. Weiss model comes up with an ingenious thing, which was his Ferdinand Roth personality. He, 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 the Ferdinand Roth is the representative of world Jewry in Switzerland, who is a fictitious person, and he is writing these letters, which Weissmandel and other members of the working group wrote in the name of Ferdinand Roth, who didn't exist. But this led Vislitseni to think that there was really a, 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 a world Jewry involved involvement. Um, so Weissmandel always went ahead with new ideas, new schemes. You have to save lives, money is irrelevant. We'll get the money. The working group believed that if they succeeded in getting the information out to the West, that there's an equation. After the final solution is understood by everyone, they said if we get the information out to the West, that deportation equals death. Deportation, the word deportation means extermination. It equals extermination. Then every Jewish pocket in the world would open and the working group would be inundated with money, they'd be, be mobbed with money, and, and then we would solve all the problems because we would be able to bribe away our way out of everything. That was the philosophy of Steiner, of Weissmann, of Gysi Fleischmann, of all of them. And they were very, very disappointed when that didn't happen, because they disseminated that information. And they, they miscalculated the reaction of the Jewish world. And Steiner, in his interview with Claude Landsman in the 19, late, I think early 80s, he says, Till today I don't understand why the world jury did not uh, open up their pockets. Why didn't the joint provide the funds? Human lives were at stake, not bureaucratic programs. And he describes also the moment where they found out about the final solution. He says, One day in November, while he's sitting in Gissy Fleischmann's office, Weissmandl comes in crying and trembling with a few letters from Poland from couriers that Weissmandl had personally, his couriers. They brought him the news from Poland that deportation means annihilation. Camps means gas chambers. And... Um, and, uh, and, and, and so Gissi Fleischmann says we have to spread the news to the world. And she and Frieder and Weissmandl start writing letters to the whole world, to everyone in Hungary. and everyone, The whole world to them was basically their contacts in Hungary and Switzerland. And from there it got to the other parts of the world. And again, they had this expectation that as soon as world jury would know about this, they would all send money to save Jews, but it did not happen. Um, so the, the, the question is, is if the, the bribes with Vislitseni didn't work because of a lack of funds, or was there a political situation internally in the SS? Um, and that remains the question. But in any event, um, after this, this reprieve of, of Slovakian jury, which the working group attributed to the fact that they had bribed Vislitseni, so Weissmandl says, well, if we bribe us with sunny for Slovakian Jews, then why don't we come up with a plan to save all European Jews? And this is the Europa plan. To save all remaining Jews in Europe. Remember, this is already deep into 1943. Almost all Jews who would be killed in the Holocaust were already killed. 
Nearly 5 million Jews had already been killed by the end of 1943 when the Europa Plan was attempted to be implemented. And and uh, the attempt was to save a million Jews for $2 million, some sources say $3 million, either $2 or $3 per Jew. That was the plan. And if we succeed in, succeed in Slovakia, then we can succeed everywhere in Europe. The working group was very skeptical about the plan, but Gysi Fleischmann was on board. And once she supported it, so Steiner supported it, and he decided he's going to submit the idea to Vislitseni. Um, so he went to him again, and Vislitseni said, this I have to get Heinrich Himmler's permission for, the chief of the SS. And incredibly enough, Himmler gave the go-ahead to proceed with the plan. Steiner didn't even believe Vislitseni that Himmler gave him the, the go-ahead, so Vislitseni called Himmler on the phone. And, 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 and had Steiner pick up the second receiver to hear Himmler say it. So he actually heard Himmler say it, if it was Himmler on the phone. Of course, we can't know if it was really Himmler or not. But, um, but he called Berlin, and, and he had Himmler on the phone, and Steiner heard Himmler say to his representative of world Jewry, and Himmler said, proceed with the negotiations, you can start negotiate, negotiating. So now, by this point, the negotiating with with, uh, for, was a little too heavy for Steiner, so he insisted that Gysi Fleischmi, Fleischmann attend the meetings with him, with Vislitseni. So the two of them would actually go together, um, and she and and Steiner would would and she was like uh, a almost like a female version of Rebbe Weissmandel in the passion, very idealistic, very passionate, very charismatic, and really literally willing to give anything to sacrifice anything to save Jewish lives. That was. Uh, Gissi Fleischmann, and she was on the Zionist secular joint side, what Weissmandl was for the Orthodox. Um, and and uh, they, 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 again, they thought that now they would give, the world Jewry would give more money. So they start writing letters all over Europe. And Gissi Fleischmann and Weissmandl are the main letter writers. They write these heartbreaking letters all over the world, and they were devastated when the money didn't come in. Um, so, so Vizetseni was told by Fleischmann that Sally Mayer, the joint representative in Switzerland, would forward the first $200,000. And this would be a first payment. And they said to Vizetseni, we want to see that you're really serious. So when we give, what we want is that there should be a thousand children saved from the Bialystok ghetto. They'd be brought first from the Bialystok ghetto in Poland to Theresienstadt in in, in Czechia, near Prague, and in the Theresienstadt ghetto camp, whatever whatever it is, and if they come to Theresienstadt, if the children, if we hear from the Jewish leadership of Theresienstadt, the working group says to Vizlitseni, if we hear from the Jewish leadership of Theresienstadt that the children have arrived, you'll get your first $100,000. If the children arrive in Switzerland from Theresienstadt, you'll get the second hundred thousand dollars. And then we know the negotiations are serious, and then we can proceed with the rest of the money and the rest of the Jews being saved. And the working group thought that the joint would be able to put the money together. Um, and she knew, and Gissi Fleischmann knew it would take time, so they came up with this whole first thousand children uh, story. So the as far as the working group was concerned, what they heard from Theresienstadt is that the children arrived. They, they heard that the children arrived. But Sally Mayer of the Joint said that the Joint believed that the Nazis were playing with the working group just for extortion. They were not going to stop the deportations, and they were just extorting money from the working group, and then they were still going to deport all the Jews. So the working, so the working group should not be bribing the Nazis. And, uh, and the working group insisted that Vyslitseni is sincere, and he is, could be worked with. And there's this negotiating back and forth, in addition to the fact that the Joint said it would be very difficult to, to transfer the money during wartime in dollars, um, in cash, not through any official banks because it's bribe money. It would be an incredibly difficult to process. Um, so the, it stalls. And eventually um, Steiner is forced to inform Vyslitseni that they don't have the money. Um, the working group assumed at the time, that the failure of the Europa Plan was a result of the money not arriving from the joint and other Jewish organizations. However, at Nuremberg, Vizetzeni testified that Himmler put a stop to it. 
Um, it's also a, a protest from the Mufti of Jerusalem that he heard the children are going to come to Palestine and he wasn't interested in, uh, in any Jews coming to Palestine. That, that might also be part of the story. Um, so, the, again, there's this... So what really, whose, whose fault was it? Was it internally an SS? Was the joint right in saying that the working group was trusting Vislitseni and the SS too much? Would the SS have actually stopped the final solution because of a couple of million dollars? Um, it's hard to believe. It's, it's almost impossible to believe. It seems incredibly naive to think so from what we know about the SS and how they operated. And while this Litseni is negotiating the Europa Plan, he actually leaves for a few months to oversee the deportation of Greek Jewry in Saloniki and then later of Hungarian Jewry. So it's, it's, and then Himmler gives an order for this negotiations to be broken off because um, that's not what the SS should be doing. So it's very difficult to understand what, what was going on with the Europa Plan and if it actually would have come to fruition had the joint uh, miraculously been able to transfer all that money uh, during the war with the currency exchange rates at the time and all that reality. Had they been able to do it, um, what, what, what would have happened? It's a big what if, it's a big question. The members of the working group insisted until the last one died, until Andre Steiner died, that it would have happened had the joint and other organizations send, sent the money. Um, the working group was stunned that $200,000, which is not even $2 million, from Budapest to Switzerland couldn't come. Hungarian Jews um, were supposed to send money, but they said, we only can send it from the Hungarian National Bank to the Slovak National Bank. An incredible story, Gissi Fleischmann actually traveled to Hungary herself to fundraise unsuccessfully. Um, during the war, she leaves Slovakia, she meets with the Orthodox leaders, uh, Pinchas Freudiger, the son-in-law of Rebekiva Seifer, who had a title, a nobility. He was Pinchas, Philip von Freudiger, one of the most important and wealthiest Orthodox families in Budapest. So he meets with him, and he meets, she, meet, she meets with him, and she meets with Kastner, who was the head of the Zionists. And they make a big dinner for her, and she, she described to the working group, to Steiner and to others, how the women are wearing diamonds and jewelry and great food, and it's very fancy. And she literally could not believe that while the rest of Jewish Europe was being exterminated in gas chambers, Polish Jewry was gone, Slovakian Jewry was almost gone, Dutch Jewry was gone, Greek Jewry was gone, and Hungarian Jewry was living as if everything was normal and good times. There were speeches at the dinner and promises that they'll fundraise and money, but the money has to go through official channels. And Freudiger and the Orthodox community, as well as Kastner and the Zionist community, was unwilling to bail out this uh, Europa plan and Gissi Fleischmann. Um, so here we have a unique situation that doesn't fit in with the narrative. That's Gissi Fleischmann, the secular Zionist Jew, is up against Freudiger, the Orthodox Jew, and they're the ones who are not giving the money to save the, the Europa plan. Um, so the uniqueness of the Europa plan was that no distinction was made between Jews. It was to save everyone. The working group in general was completely unique in this regard. The working group represented the Jewish community in its entirety with no distinctions, unlike what would later be in Hungary, where Freudiger would represent rescue efforts strictly for the Orthodox community and its rabbis, and Kastner would strictly represent the Zionist community, um, and, and, and they had to negotiate with each other when Kastner got the train, um, and, and Freudiger was able to get certain rabbis and certain Orthodox people on the train. So that was, you know, an agreement between the two, um, who should be saved. Um, the working group considered that playing God to make selections of who should be saved, and they were against any selecting. Um, the working group asked Freudiger and Kastner to follow their model, and they did not. Um, and even Rabbi Chobar Weissmandel never once said to prioritize the Orthodox or to prioritize the yeshiva students. That wasn't his way. Um, so they became very disillusioned and angry, um, the working group that the Europa Plan uh, failed. And, um, and uh, Bauer and most historians today believe that the working group was unrealistic at thinking the Europa Plan had any chance of success. It's more likely that the Nazis were extorting them and were playing with them, and they were never going to actually implement the plan in its entirety. Um, Vesetseni soon leaves for Greece to organize the deportation of Saloniki Jews to Auschwitz. Later on, he returns to Slovakia, then the deportations of Hungarian Jewry commence. So he's in Budapest with Eichmann, 
Um, and then there's the new Blood for Goods uh, plan to save Hungarian Jewry, uh, 10,000 trucks. That becomes more negotiations with the Hungarian uh, rescue commu- uh, commu- uh, committees. Um, the working group uh, did not have any connections in Greece at all, and they didn't even attempt to save Greek Jewry. But incredibly enough, before Vislitseni leaves for Greece, Gissi Fleischmann and Steiner reach out to Vislitseni and say, when you go to Greece, can you please reach out to Greek Jewry's leadership and try to offer them to negotiate that, that you'll accept bribes as well uh, there? And, you know, they believed that Vislitseni, they trusted him, that he would uh, that he would continue to save Jews through bribery uh, there, which did not materialize. Um, uh, Vislitseni claimed that he never was able to meet any Greek Jewish leaders later. Um, but Vesalcini never lost his credibility in the eyes of the working uh, group. After every setback, the working group continued to try to come up with other plans. In September 1944, the Slovakian deportations resume. Weissmangel himself was on a train to Auschwitz. He escaped. He begged his family to follow him, and they did not. And he kind of had a breakdown after the war. He hid in a bunker in Bratislava with the Strapka Vareva, and then uh, Kastner uh, uh, arranges uh, his escape into Switzerland in the last weeks of the war. Um, and then after the war, when he arrives in the United States, he basically blamed the whole world, and he accused the whole world, both the religious and the secular, the, everyone. He was very angry at everyone. But it, what was even sadder and more tragic was he called himself a traitor to his family, and he called himself a murderer of his family for leaving them behind, which he was not. And other members of the working group tried to convince him that he had a mission, um, that he was, you know, to save the Jewish people and what he needed to do, and he was able to jump off the plane, and uh, it was to no avail. He never forgave himself. Um, so the, uh, the, the, uh, they also play a role. Again, this already way... This is for Tisha B'Av, so there's more time to listen. So even though it's an hour... Uh, into this episode, I'm comfortable being, uh, you know, double the, double the length of time than a normal episode. Um, but I still want to come to the end. I just want to point out there was several other stories that the working group is heavily involved in. One is the Verba Weitzler report: two escapees from Auschwitz, Rudolf Verba and Alfred Weitzler, Slovakian Jews who escape on April seventh, nineteen forty-four. And they arrive in Bratislava April 23rd, 1944. And it's Dr. Oscar Newman, one of the heads of the working group, and two others who interview them. And the working group is the one who disseminates this report. And they send a copy to Freudiger in Budapest. They send a copy to Kastner. They send the copies to Switzerland. Excuse me. And uh, the question is, what do Freudiger and, um, and Kastner do with it? And they don't spread the word among Hungarian Jewry. In fact... I always wonder what would have happened had Weissmandel and Kastner lived long enough to testify at the Eichmann trial. That would have been pretty exciting. Because Freudiger did. He testified at the Eichmann trial, and when the judge asks him, why didn't you disseminate the uh, news of the Verba Weitzler report before the deportations of Hungarian Jewry and give Hungarian Jewry a chance to run away, which is kind of the accusation against Kastner, but Freudiger is an Orthodox Jew, a prominent individual with a long beard, so it's more exciting to ask him the question. And Freudiger says, uh, you know, he fumfits a little bit, and he says, well, I didn't really want to sow any panic, and I didn't tell anyone. And all of a sudden, you see, this is on YouTube, you can watch all the testimonies of the Eichmann trial online. You can see it, you know, I'm not making it up. Um, but the, the gallery starts to yell. They start to protest. And the judge is forced to call, the justice is forced to call a recess to the court because everyone's yelling at Freudiger, why didn't he say anything? Um, so that's an interesting story. Uh, the Verba Weitzler report and the role of the working group in getting that information out. And then another point is the, what I mentioned before, the proposal to bomb Auschwitz, which is the idea of Remechol Ber Weissmandel. In fact, he had another idea, to blow up a tunnel, of a railroad tunnel leading out of Bratislava, which the trains going to Auschwitz used. And he said, I can use yeshiva students from, uh, from the yeshiva in Bratislava that's still operating in, in 1944. I'm going to take yeshiva students to blow up the tunnel. And Steiner says that Rav Bechobar Weissmandel was nicknamed in the working group the partisan rabbi, because he wasn't just about bribes. He said, Rav Bechobar Weissmandel said, I'll use any means to fight the Nazis. We can fight them militarily, we can fight them as partisans, we can blow up trains, we can blow up railroad tracks, 
We can do bribery, anything to save Jews. It's not limited to shtadlanus or anything else. If we can fight by other means, then that is legitimate as well. Um, so the uh, the that is a little bit of the story of the working group. The, probably the greatest heroes of the Holocaust, if I had to make that judgment, which I, I hope I don't because I don't like to rate things or make some people more important than others. But their story of their attempts, the scope of what they tried, and the fact that it was all these different Jews working together, um, and what they were able to accomplish, their limited accomplishments, and more so what they attempted, what they tried um, with their negotiations with the Nazis and and sending the information out to the world is unparalleled. And the working group will go down in history as uh, some of the greatest Jewish heroes in some of the most tragic times of Jewish history. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.